beneficial for us, this explanation of feeling. There is nothing more important in the whole of a human life other than feeling. It takes pride of place even though we usually don't even notice that that is what we are reacting to. So, gratifying is a pleasant one and hurting is a painful one. And when neither one of these two things take place, it's neutral. (laughs) Now he's asking a, a very strange way, he's asking it. What is pleasant feeling? Now he wants to know something else. What is pleasant feeling, pleasant in virtue of, and painful in virtue of? What is neutral feeling, pleasant in virtue of, and painful in virtue of? I can't quite make out what that's supposed to mean, in virtue of. Well, how does it arise, I would say? Pleasant feeling... Hmm. Pleasant feeling, no, it doesn't mean arising. Pleasant feeling is pleasant because of its presence and painful because of change. Now, this is the essence of impermanence. Everybody wants pleasant feelings, but we always forget that they are also painful because they change. Now, painful feeling is painful because of its presence and pleasant because of its change. So when the painful feeling goes away, we're very happy about it. That's a great pleasure when it goes away. But when the pleasant feeling goes away, that's a tragedy, and so we have to run after it and get it back over and over again. And this is what the whole of humanity works at, getting pleasant feelings. But we can't keep them because they change. Now, neutral, neutral feelings are pleasant because of, their no- of our knowledge of them and painful when we don't know about them. I can't quite see that they should be painful that we don't know about them. The painfulness that I can see in that is only the the fact that we aren't very mindful and are not aware, and not being aware is painful. Stupidity hurts. But usually one isn't aware enough to know how hurtful it is. So our lack of awareness and awakeness is of course painful in many aspects and in this one also we don't know about it. But when there's a neutral feeling we think it's quite pleasant when we're aware of it because it's not painful. So we are actually always only concerned with pleasant and unpleasant feelings or pleasant and painful feelings. Now this discussion is actually very important 
in the aspect of insight, of impermanence, and our lack of recognition of what is dukkha and what is sukha. Now, dukkha is painful and sukha is pleasure. And the Buddha always said that we've got it completely upside down. We always think of that what is dukkha as sukha and that what is sukha as dukkha. That what is painful we think is pleasant. So what we are always after is a repetition of the pleasant feelings, but in reality, because we can't keep them, we are using our energy as a desire, and desire is always connected with dukkha. Now, the Visaka asked again, the underlying tendency to what underlies in the case of pleasant feelings and the underlying tendency to what underlies in the case of painful feeling or a neutral feeling. He wants to know what are the underlying tendencies. The underlying tendency, that which arises within, the underlying tendency to lust underlies in the case of pleasant feeling, the underlying tendency to resistance underlies in the case of painful feeling, and the underlying tendency to ignorance underlies in the case of neutral feeling. Now these are underlying tendencies which everybody has, and very few people actually get far enough to recognize them. They appear to be as if they as if they have a sort of um quality that is negating our own value. We feel as if we are not measuring up to a certain value system when we finally recognize or are on the point of recognizing that we have these underlying tendencies, which is all nonsense because everybody's got them. And since if, if we were ever to come to the point to recognize the fact that everybody has them and find them in ourselves, we could do something about them. But as long as we don't find them, there's nothing we can do. We can only remove what we have actually found. So the underlying tendency in the case of a pleasant feeling is lust. Lusting for its remaining there and its repetition, in other words, the lust to keep it. And the underlying tendency for painful feeling is resistance rejection, we don't want it, we want to get rid of it. So in one case we are exhibiting greed, in the other case we are exhibiting hate. And since these are the um, two roots which arise out of our delusion, everybody's got them. And the only time that we will ever come to terms with them is we accept the fact objectively that this is how a human being is born and when we finally have seen that then we might be able to do something about them so the pleasant feeling creates greed and the unpleasant feeling creates hate 
and obviously the underlying tendency for this neutral feeling is ignorance because most of the time we wouldn't know that we have it. Now the, he wants to know whether this underlying tendency to lust or greed is, in the, is the case in all pleasant feelings and in the tendency to resistance in the case of all painful feelings and the same for the ignorance. And she says, no, it's not like that. Not in all cases does one have lust and does one have greed and does one have ignorance. So now he wants to know how does one, what does one have to abandon in the case of pleasant feelings and painful feelings and in neutral feelings. And she says, it is possible to abandon lust and greed. It's possible to abandon abandon resistance and hate and it's possible to abandon ignorance in case of all these three different feelings. And he asks her then whether that whether this is really um, for any human being if that's really possible. And he then wants to know whether that is possible in the case of all of them. Whether under all circumstances we can abandon hate and greed and ignorance in the case of all of these feelings. And she says, no. It's not the case in all certain feelings and not the case in all un- uh, resisting feelings or in, igno- in ignorance. And now, of course, he wants to know which ones, where that is not possible and where it's possible to abandon hate and greed. And here we come now to the explanation again for, of the jhanas, because we have certain feelings in the jhanas, and they need not be abandoned. Jhanas, meditative absorptions which we have, of course, discussed at length already, so I'll I'll just read it. Quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unprofitable mental formations, one enters upon and abides in the first jhana. So, in the first jhana, in the first meditative absorption, there are no there are no unprofitable, unskillful thought processes, otherwise one can't get in, of course, and which is accompanied by initial and sustained application, with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. And with that, one can abandon lust and no underlying tendency to lust is there to be found. Now this is the purification system that I've talked about over and over again, that the jhanas are the purification par excellence for our underlying tendency, for our hindrances, but also going a step further, as we can hear from this uh, discourse between these two people, that it doesn't just abandon, it doesn't just (coughs) counteract our hindrances, but 
it's a purification even for the underlying tendencies. Now the underlying tendencies are one step further removed from our consciousness as in the hindrances. The hindrances, when anybody gets angry, they know. When anybody wants a sensual pleasure, they usually know. It's being justified. It's totally justifiable in most people's minds, but one knows. But the underlying tendency which arises immediately following pleasant and unpleasant feelings or neutral feeling which is connected to ignorance, which I think we might uh, just um, disregard for a moment. Uh, this underlying tendency is an unconscious immediate reaction which we have to become conscious of through far more mindfulness that we need to have for our hindrances. Hindrances are easy to see. When we have skeptical doubt and don't believe anything we're being told and want to do it our own way, well, we know that. We might not call it skeptical doubt. We justify it and say, well, I know better. And that's the end of that one. And when, when we have sloth and torpor, we don't say that we have sloth and torpor. We say, well, we didn't have enough sleep. I mean, you know, we just call it something else, but it's exactly the same thing. And uh, when we have sensual desire, we say, well, I need a vacation. I mean, we just call it different things to make it justifiable and sound better. It doesn't sound nice when we say, I have sensual desire, and we do like to sound nice, which is, of course, nothing but verbiage, nothing else. But we at least know about these things to some extent. Whereas the underlying tendency is something that springs up without any volition and um, it doesn't have any, it doesn't even seem to have any counteraction there. There's nothing there that we can do, it's just there. The minute there's pleasant feeling, there is that tendency to lust. The lusting after having it, keeping it, repeating it. It may even be sexual lust, which is the strongest of our sensual desires, but that is usually noticeable. The, the lust which is being talked about here, which we can call greed or whatever we like to call it, is this immediate feeling that this is okay now, and I'm going to have it and keep it. And then vice versa, with a painful feeling, there's this immediate and really not conscious volition to get rid of. This, there's a resistance. Painful feelings are just not on. Painful feelings are okay for other people, but not for me. So they're not on, so I don't want to have anything to do with it. And this brings, of course, then the... Uh, um, brings on the next step then the hate of whoever we think has occasioned this um, resistance feeling feeling of resistance now nobody has of course done anything about this it's just a complete and uh, immediate um, response to the uh, painful feeling nothing else so that's why they're called the underlying tendencies 
the hindrances are the Panchanivaranas in Pali, Nivaranas, whereas the underlying tendencies are Asavas. So that's a different word and a different thing. And although they concern the same mental states and the same emotional states, which makes so much trouble for us, they are something which is more difficult to find and more subtle and more embedded in the unconscious reaction of any human being that still carries around the illusion of self. And again, we hear, as so many times, over and over again, that the jhanas are the antidote. Because we can only do the jhanas if we are secluded from sensual desire. We mustn't have any sensual desire at that time, otherwise it can't happen. Unprofitable, which are unskillful or unwholesome thoughts, must not be in the mind, otherwise we can't do them either. And because there is pleasure, happiness and pleasure is mentioned, pleasure is the, um, at this point, the translation most likely for delightful sensation, happiness for the accompanying feeling of sukha, happiness. They are born of this seclusion. They're born of the seclusion from sensual desire and from unprofitable mental formations. They're not born of, of the seclusion in a physical sense, but in a mental sense. And because these are profitable states, there is no lust with them. The underlying tendency to lust is not there. And so it is an enormous purification system. Nothing could be more important in one's practice and if meditation does not eventually result in that, uh, one has really um, missed out on the most important part of meditation. Now, now comes a very uh, different way of describing how one gets rid of this resistance, this underlying tendency, resistance. Here a person considers thus, when shall I enter upon and abide in that base which noble ones now enter upon and abide in, which means the base of the meditative absorption. And as he builds up love, for the supreme liberation in this way love for Nibbana the whole of the Buddha's teaching has only one purpose and that's Nibbana whatever else happens on the way there that's only added benefits this is the only thing that really matters so he builds up love for supreme liberation grief arises with that love as its condition. So he has enormous love for the understand, because he understands that Nibbana is the supreme state. But grief arises with love as condition because of the fact that he hasn't got there. 
And with that, he abandons resistance. And no underlying tendency to resistance underlies that. Now, if one has completely dedicated oneself to this, what is called here the supreme liberation, what is the freedom, the uh, complete ending of dukkha, the loss of self, and one has this complete dedication Obviously, love for that arises. And the grief which comes with it is not a tragedy, nor is it anything that one needs to um, become unhappy about. It's just an understanding that oneself hasn't got that. And with that, the heart opens and becomes soft and pliable and expandable, and so there's no resistance in it. So this is a a recipe for getting rid of many of the difficulties which people experience in the practice. When one practices properly, it's always attacking the ego. And so one wants to find a scapegoat. It's very difficult to have one's ego attacked. And the scapegoat doesn't exist, so it's not a pleasant feeling. But the counteraction for that is a complete love and devotion to the highest ideal there is, an understanding that only when the heart is totally open is one on the way there. Resistance arises out of anything. The weather is too cold. We've just gone through all this so I'm not inventing it. The food, it doesn't taste good. It's not the way one is used to it. The uh, atmosphere, the other people, the teacher, the teaching, all of this creates resistance. Why? Because the ego is being attacked on all levels. And only when love is completely established for the past, and with that love, the understanding that oneself is not, has not reached the ideal, has one left behind the resistance to all those little things on the way which can completely take one off the practice, as we know. Complete and utter loss of practice because of resistance. And love is the counteraction for that. But what is also being expressed here is something else. What is being expressed there is the second jhana. The second meditative absorption is often, instead of the joy that becomes the high point of this particular um, level of consciousness, can be an overflowing of love. And if one looks for a subject, one's on the wrong track. The love which has arisen in the second jhana is due to the fact, is due to the practice. 
It's the love for the teaching and love for the practice. And it results in a total giving of oneself to that. With no, nothing being kept back. So, if one keeps nothing back, not at all, there's no resistance. So this can also be the explanation of the second jhana, which instead of joy, brings up love feeling, an overflowing love feeling, and can have a tinge of, this love feeling can have a tinge of, um, I would call it grief, it may have a tinge of um, pain actually, because it can be so strong. It's not an unpleasant pain at all. The strength of it can be a bit painful. Now, our usual everyday language is not designed for spiritual matters. So we are again and again confronted with difficulties of explanation. So we have to practice it and explain it ourselves. Now comes the uh, third jhana. Here, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, should be the fourth one, and with the previous disappearance of mental joy and grief, one enters upon and abides as the fourth one in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure and has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. With that we abandon ignorance and the underlying tendency to ignorance does not underlie that. So we have in the fourth jhana an enormously strong antidote for our ignorance. It has, as I've often explained, the least, the fourth one, has the least of the observer in it. So there's the least of the self in it. And as it has the least of the self in it, we may actually have an inkling what it means to get to a point where there isn't anybody there experiencing anything. Because it is the um, most peaceful of the first, uh, first um, fine, fine material absorption, the Rupa Jhanas. Here it is said that pleasure and pain play no part in it. Joy and grief also play no part in it. They don't have any of those states in it, the fourth one. There's absolute mindfulness due to equanimity. Now that's a very interesting aspect and it goes far beyond the fourth jhana. Purity of mindfulness can only arise when there is equanimity. Now this is a very important point and which is not often mentioned. It's um, not mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta but here it is mentioned because it's part of the fourth jhana. So, which means if there are emotional upsets or emotional passions mindfulness goes out the window. 
Not that it only becomes impure, impure, there is no such thing as impure mindfulness, it just isn't happening. It may have the, the, well, yes, there's nothing left usually, nothing at all. So mindfulness is happening when there is even mindlessness. When passions and desires and joy and grief and pain and pleasure are not present, but there is nothing but bare attention. Mindfulness is bare attention. Now that kind of practice is outside of the meditation practice. There's an extremely interesting um, point being made here, which is very worthwhile to remember, that mindfulness can only be practiced when there is a lack of emotional high or low. Emotional highs and lows are anyway very damaging because they don't um, conduce to peacefulness and mindfulness is to be, has to be practiced with peacefulness at its base. So purity of mindfulness is due to equanimity, due to a state of mind which is even and level. But if you can say the opposite, the practice of mindfulness is conducive to equanimity. So we have it both ways. And having it both ways, it stands to reason that without mindfulness, the whole of the practice falls apart. Who is the fourth jhana which has no joy, no grief, no pleasure, no pain? And because it has none of those, and there is a very minor observer, we are able to abandon at that time the ignorance under which we operate that we are the ones that have a personal ego. And the underlying tendency to ignorance at that time is abandoned. We do not respond with ignorance in the fourth jhana because if we do we can't even have it we can't notice it the fourth jhana is dependent upon complete awareness awakeness stillness peacefulness mindfulness even-mindedness and the understanding that it's much more peaceful when there's nobody there Now here, uh, interestingly enough, the, um, there, are only the first, there are only three jhanas mentioned, and the second one isn't even mentioned by name. So we have one, two, and four. But um, the second one is by inference and not by mentioned by name. <laughs> now he's going to go on a different track but still on feelings I think I'll, I'll finish all that because there's nothing much, not much left now he wants to know what is the counterpart of pleasant feelings now she says quite rightly painful feeling is the counterpart and what's the counterpart of painful feeling she says pleasant feeling is the counterpart 
And what's the counterpart of neutral feeling? Ignorance is the counterpart of neutral feeling. What's the counterpart of ignorance? True knowledge is the counterpart of ignorance. What's the counterpart of true knowledge? Deliverance is the counterpart of true knowledge. Deliverance, deliverance from dukkha. What is the counterpart of deliverance? Nibbana is the counterpart of deliverance. What's the counterpart of Nibbana? Now she says to him, Prince Isaka, you have pushed the line of questioning too far. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> you cannot find a conclusion to this line of questioning, for it is the life divine that merges in Nibbana and leads to Nibbana. If you like, you may go to the Blessed One and ask him the meaning of this. And as he answers, those you should remember. In other words, you've gone too far with this rather, um, you know, nitpicking of questions, but go and ask the Buddha and whatever he says, that'll be all right. So then, the lay follower Visaka, delighted in the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina's words, and after agreeing, he rose from his seat, and paying homage, keeping her on his right, he departed and went to the Blessed One. And after paying homage to him, he sat down on one side. And when he had done so, he recounted to the Blessed One all his conversation with the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina. When this was said, the Blessed One told him, The Bhikkhuni Dhammadina is wise. Visaka, the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina, has great understanding. Had you asked me the meaning of this, I should have given you the same reply. As the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina has answered you, such is the meaning, and so you should remember it. This is what the Blessed One said. And the lay follower Visaka was satisfied and he delighted in the Blessed One's words. Well, seeing he was a non-returner, he had long ago given up skeptical doubt. If that had happened to anyone um, in the West, who is not even a Sremantra, this probably would have had a different conclusion, this story. But for a non-returner, this is obvious, because there's no skeptical doubt at all in the Buddha's words. The importance of this whole um, uh, sutta that uh, is of the greatest impact is the fact that the jhanas do not only purify our hindrances, but also our underlying tendencies. And I have often stressed the importance of what the jhanas will do, and here we have a, um, a confirmation of that, of the importance of that. Mm-hmm. There's some um, sorry, I'll just see if there's anything else. The um, but also what we find here is the uh, importance given to those three kinds of feeling which do not even take into account our emotional reactions to them other than the tendencies which are always there and which spring up at no provocation at all just because of our feelings. So what that tells us is that our mindfulness of our feelings 
and our reaction to them is of the greatest importance in daily life and in the meditative practice that the purification system of the jhanas must never be underestimated and therefore always practice. The um, usual way we get pleasant feelings and painful ones is through our sense contact. What we see here, taste, touch, smell and taste. And that's how we do get our pleasant and painful feelings, and sometimes neutral ones, of course, which we don't pay much attention to. And because of that, it is quite, it is many, it's said many times by the Buddha, and here again by this Bhikkhuni, that we need to abandon the tendency to lust and resistance when these feelings arise in an ordinary manner. But when they arise in the jhanas, because of concentration, those tendencies are not present. So we can actually check this out for ourselves. Since this is the end of this this particular sutta, I think I'll stop there. And um, if you have any questions, this is the time for them. But Visaka? Yeah. No. Not that I know of anyway. The only story that there is is that he's asking his his Damadina all these questions. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Yeah. If they're just feelings without the words. And just accept it as such. Oh, certainly. Oh, certainly. That's uh, well. The words don't 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 make the tendencies arise. It's the that well. That was explained at the beginning. The pleasant feeling is gratifying, and the unpleasant feeling is hurtful. Now, we don't have to say pleasant or unpleasant. We can be aware of hurtful or gratifying without using any words. And that doesn't constitute the karma making yet. And it doesn't constitute our return to the round of rebirth. It's the reaction which does. And the reaction to the gratifying one is the lust reaction or the greed reaction or desire reaction, whichever word one wants to use, let's say desire reaction. And the reaction to the hurtful one is a resistance reaction. We don't have to give it any names at all. The uh, names which we're using here is only to make this whole thing um, presentable. There's no other way of doing that except with words. But just to be aware of gratification or hurt is sufficient and then not to react 
with those underlying tendencies is a possibility to abandon the, the reaction. But it's what is being said here is that the purification system of the jhanas are the greatest help. Naturally, one can abandon. She also says that one can abandon. There's no, no reason why one can't learn that too. It's right here. Hang on a minute, I'll find it. So he says, what can one abandon in the case of pleasant feeling and in the case of painful and neutral? And she says, the underlying tendency to lust we can abandon and the underlying tendency to resistance and the underlying tendency to ignorance. And then he says, in all cases? And then she says, no, uh, it's not in the case of all of these feelings that it has to be abandoned. It's in the case when we have the jhanas, it doesn't have to be. But it is possible. He wants to know if it's possible. And he says, yes, she says it is possible. So what we, with, with enormous mindfulness, which one learns through the meditation, it's possible to notice the unpleasant or the pleasant feeling and have no reaction whatsoever and just have the feeling there. It's possible but it's very difficult. It's not not a um, thing that one can immediately do and certainly something that has to be practiced over and over again. And the jhanas are our helpmates and without them it will be probably quite impossible to do it. So it's not exactly the words, it's the reaction with that doesn't have to have words in it. Is that clear? Well, what way are you asking? Hmm. Well, do you want to reword your question? Okay, all right. Okay. Anything else? Yes. I'm not sure that I got this right, but I thought that um, the sutra was saying that the second jhana, uh, joy could also be experienced as a as a love with a small amount of tenderness. Um, would that be comparable to the feeling of compassion that one might have? The love or the pain? Well, together. Oh. <laughs> together. <laughs> Yes, it could be. It has to be, in order to be a second jhana, it has to be absolutely overflowing. But compassion would arise out of seeing dukkha. Yes. It could be that. Yes, one could use it like that. But I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that just when you have compassion in the moment for seeing something that you experience in the second jhana, but that it seems that the description of it is similar to that. That's right. Yes. Yes, it's quite true. Yes. The two ingredients together could be uh, construed like that, yes. It's quite true. And it, in the, uh, to be a jhana, it has to be absolutely overflowing, yes. Uh, the, the, sorry, the difference between compassion and the second jhana. No, 
The second jhana is usually joy, but it can be love tinged with a bit of dukkha or pain, and because of that, it could also be a feeling of compassion. Um, these are three different, well, slightly different feelings that compassion becomes strong enough to be a second jhana is love can become strong enough to be a second jhana uh, it's uh, I, I think what Barbara is bringing out is that the love tinged with that bit of uh, dukkha feels something like compassion but not necessarily to be in the second jhana so it's, it can be the love feeling and it can be the joy feeling these are two different kinds and they of course they overlap too I mean the love has joy in it and has a bit of pain in it and the joy has a bit of love in it they all overlap but one has to be the the overriding one right okay yeah don't let's confuse your issue just just do it (laughs) yes Stephen (laughs) (laughs) when it's overflowing and it doesn't seem as if you could open it enough yes I see what you're saying and then it feels a bit painful because it seems to be contained where it should actually be all embracing right instead of contained be all embracing Uh, yes um, oh practice (laughs) over and over (laughs) Um, letting go of fear there's an element of fear in it, of letting oneself go that much in that kind of emotion. Yeah. Yes. So having seen that, to let let it go. You know, there's nothing to fear because it's all embracing. It's not even personalized. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
find a feeling of forgiveness for yourself inside of yourself forgiving yourself all the things that you might not like about yourself everything that you've ever thought, said or done which turned out to be unproductive or unwholesome forgive yourself for anything at all that ever happened in your life that may have been less than perfect let this forgiveness fill you and surround you with a feeling of warmth and serenity and contentment think of anyone whom you may have been judging negatively forgive that person completely for anything you know or think that they might have done or said Fill them, fill that person with your forgiveness. Warmly embracing, totally accepting. Non-rejecting. And now forgive your parents for anything that you might have thought or are thinking they have done wrongly. Fill them with the warmth and the acceptance 
and the love that total forgiveness brings. And now anyone else in your family or amongst your acquaintances or friends whom you may have been rejecting or resisting forgive them completely accepting not rejecting loving and caring understanding the difficulty that every human being has Think of people whom you might not know personally, but whom you've been judging. Forgive them for anything that you think is wrong. Understanding the difficulties accepting and fully embracing anyone whom you may have been judging known or unknown to you
Let forgiveness and acceptance and love fill your heart completely. And then let it flow out. into the world to beings human or otherwise touching them with that warmth and that care that comes from forgiveness let it flow first near here and then further and further afield like a stream that flows from your heart engulfing every being in its wake bringing forgiveness care and love Put your attention back on yourself and feel the heart expand when it's so full of forgiveness and love and care. Feel how it bursts its limitations and boundaries and becomes all-embracing become the forgiveness become the love that is all-embracing put your attention back on the feeling within your own heart and anchor the forgiveness 
the care and the love within it. So that it will remain there. And that you have always access to it. Feel the softness and the lack of resistance that these bring to you forgiveness, love and care direct them towards yourself Make them yours to keep. May our beings forgive and love each other. <laughs> 